If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you please turn with me to the book of First Peter, First Peter chapter one, as we pick up where we left off last week. We began last week this new journey through a new book of the Bible, the New Testament. Uh, we will go through First and Second Peter at the pace that God provides us, and we hope and are praying that God will work powerfully through His inspired, inerrant, infallible Word as we open it together week after week. We're going to read the first two verses, although we're going to primarily still be thinking about a general panoramic view of this entire letter. So last week we began that panoramic look. We started to ask some of the historical questions that need to be asked of any book of the Bible when you begin to study it. Who's the author under the inspiration of God, of course? Who are the recipients of the letter? Things like that. So, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your holy word. It is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. It is food for our souls. And so we pray that by the power of your spirit, we can feed this morning and be nourished as we look to you as we depend upon you, as we meditate upon your holy words that you have preserved down through the centuries. And we just ask you to do a work. There might be people here today, Father, that need to be saved. They need to have their eyes opened and their ears unstopped and their hearts softened. And we pray for that. There are those of us who need to just be fed once and again and have our faith strengthened by your word. And the power of your Holy Spirit who indwells us. And God, there are no doubt countless other things that need to be done and could be done. And, and you know them all. And so we ask for your help. We ask you to come and be glorified and we would be helped. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We began last week by thinking about the reality of our times. We live truly in desperate times. We live in critical times. And the need of the day is not a political process toward improving civilization, although there's a need for that, but it is not the greatest need because the greatest need is always a spiritual need. People that are living on the planet today, not only in our country, but around the world that do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, those people are on a swift track toward eternal lake of fire. And so the, the greatest need is to have a person come into a right and peaceful relationship with their creator God. And that can only happen through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And the only way that these people out of the world will hear that message of grace and truth and love and mercy is if the Christian church rises up to tell it. And we tell it in word and we tell it in deed, but specifically 
words. We'll talk about that more here in just a moment. So we're not really waiting on a political process to get us ultimately where we need to go. We are waiting on the king of the universe to come and to rule this world with true justice, true righteousness, true peace, and true holy love. That's what we're waiting on as Christians. And so we began the journey of thinking about the reality that we are strangers. We are exiles in the world in a spiritual sense. Those of us who have been born again, Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He said, I don't pray that you would take them out of the world, but that you would hold them up in the world so that they can be the witnesses, so that we could be the lights that he has called us to be. We're in the world, but we're no longer of the world. And so this whole letter has this one major theme. In between the time of now and the time of the return of Jesus Christ, how then shall we live as strangers and as exiles in the world? The Apostle Peter, we learned last week, our first point was who and when, who and when? Who is writing and when? The Apostle Peter identifies himself very clearly in the opening phrases of this letter that he is, in fact, the one who is under God's inspiration, the author of this particular letter. And we talked a little bit about the person of the Apostle Peter, and you can go back on the website and listen to that about him. The date of the writing is approximately around 63, 62, 63 AD, just prior to the severe persecution that came at that time period under Nero, which ultimately led in a just a horrific persecution of the Christian church. And so that's who wrote it. Secondly, who are the recipients of the letter. It says the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. All of these are Asian provinces, modern Turkey, if you look at it on a map. They were the ones that he was writing to. And you notice one of those very clearly, the, the word Galatia, because we just spent a year going through the book of Galatians. And the book of Galatians was addressed to primarily Gentile Christians that were there who had been hearing a false message of legalistic Judaism to be the means of justification. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about that. And the Apostle Peter is writing into that same region, into those same areas. You see, you have Jewish people that were scattered abroad among all the other nations for years prior to this. Then you have the increased persecution driving Christian Jews and Gentiles out into various geographical locations. And of course, this helps to spread the truth of the gospel and plant churches in new places as well. And so you can go back and listen to our argument for this being a general dispersion, a non-technical reference to believers widely distributed geographically. There was no definite article put with that word dispersion, which in the only other two places you find it in the New Testament, it is accompanied by that particular definite article. So that's a grammatical reasoning behind that. Also, secondly, we talked about in chapter 2, verse 11, how the apostle Peter spiritually identifies his 
recipients. He does not identify them necessarily as certain ethnic group, but he addresses them in a spiritual sense. And he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, spiritual sojourners, spiritual exiles in the world to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And so the letter I do believe is addressed to not only Might be good that you hear me say that. So it's not only Jewish Christians that are scattered abroad. They are part of the recipients for sure. Because they are a part of the Christians. Where did the church begin? In Jerusalem. And Jesus said, you go back and look at Acts chapter 1 verse 7 and 8. He says, you know, that you are to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. And so it's going to spread. And what began to happen was all of the, all of the Christians at that time were right there in Jerusalem. And persecution began to spread them out. And the gospel through missionary endeavors began and evangelistic endeavors. The gospel began to spread into other geographical regions and locations and churches were planted. And so you have the apostle Paul writing to the churches at Galatia. You have the apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi, the church at Rome, the church at Corinth, and all these different geographical locations and cities. Primarily those books are written to primarily Gentile churches. However, Because the Jewish Christians were also being spread abroad as a result of the persecution, they began to go and be a part of these different places as well. You you remember, even in the book of Galatians, it was the Jewish men that were going into the, the region of Galatia and preaching a false message. So there's Jews out there that are Christians And there are Gentiles that are Christians, that are spiritual exiles in the world. And so you have this letter going out, not only to Jews who were dispersed from their native land, but Gentile believers also who are united both in Christ and were spiritual exiles and strangers in the world. So that was last week. Number three, and this is where we pick up new ground today. I want to start by thinking in a panoramic view about this letter. So what is this? This is kind of a a teaser. This is kind of a taste of where we're going in the expositions to come. We'll be looking today with a panoramic view of the book. And then we'll dive in deeply to word by word and verse by verse exposition of this letter. So number three, what is the major theme? First of all, we were talking about who wrote it and when. Secondly, who were the recipients of the letter. And thirdly, what is the major theme of the letter. And it's simply the same thing that you see on the screen. Living as strangers and exiles in this world. Let me go out of the book of First Peter to give you a broader New Testament idea uh, or underpinning for this idea. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. So... It is not only going to be the running theme of this book, with all of its theological glory, we're going to see, it's going to be so good, but it is also the running theme throughout the New Testament, and I would argue for it being a running theme throughout the entire Bible, that God's covenant people live distinctly in this world because we ultimately now are not of this world. And we, got, we, we have to define what we mean by the word world. 
Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, beloved, if you're a Christian, your main citizenship is not America, but heaven. Always remember that. As much as we should be, and I hope you are very thankful for where you live, very thankful for the freedoms that we have, and very thankful for the men and women who have fought and still hold the line so that we keep those freedoms here. We have to remember that we are first and foremost citizens of heaven. And we are not at home anymore in this world. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 beginning in verse 13. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 down to verse 16. Say this. He's talking about, let me give you a little preface while you're turning. Hebrews 11, while you're turning there, this is coming off of the tail end of a long list of the heroes of the faith, going all the way back to the patriarchs, Abraham and Moses and Sarah and and all of those Old Testament saints that were men and women of faith in God, trust in God, hope in God. And so the, the idea and the concept is going to be at the end of that long list of those that he mentions... He comes to verse 13 and he says this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were what? Strangers and exiles on the earth. See there? The concept there in the Hebrews, this is a letter to the Hebrews. And even here we understand that there is something even more than the promised land over there in Jerusalem. Now he's going to grant that too. But even the concept here for these people is that they are strangers and exiles on the earth. On this earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 14. Hebrews 13 and verse 14. He says, for here, here we have no, what? Lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. John MacArthur writes about this. Quote, Peter addressed such a wide audience because the Roman persecution of Christians had swept across the empire. We talked about that. Believers in every place were going to suffer. Every place. The apostle wanted those believers to remember that in the midst of potentially great suffering and hardship, they were still the chosen of God and that as such they could face persecution in triumphant hope. Close quote. That's what this letter is about. Hope in the midst of of a world system that we are not at home at, in. 
and encouragement for us to live as strangers and exiles in the world and some definition to what that should look like. It's going to be a good book. How do you live in the world that you're not really fully at home in? What what is that to look like as Christians? Oh, beloved, I pray that this book has a powerful impact on this church and on your life. That you will see these things and move toward this biblical vision of how to live in this world as a stranger and an exile. Well, let's start our panoramic journey here. So how do we do it? What are we going to be looking at and diving into specifically? Let me give you just a taste of where we're going. Number one, living as strangers and exiles in the world. Number one, be faithful in suffering. Be faithful in suffering. Look, if you will, back in chapter 1, verses 3 and following. 1 Peter chapter 1. This is just a taste. I'm not going to exposit this till later on. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Living hope. A living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What, what, what would you say something like that for? Because you want people to be able, by faith and the power of God and all of the means of grace, to stand up under the weight of what it means to suffer in this world with Christ. Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Verse 7, very important. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be faithful in suffering. Look in chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Chapter 2 and verse 19. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Listen to this next verse. For to this you have been called the christian church is called to suffering and the the idea is living as a stranger and an exile in the world living as salt and light in this world is going to be holding up with this eternal hope and joy in our suffering that makes the christian church so distinct from the rest of the world Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, listen to this, he did not threaten, but continued enduring, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Follow your Savior's example. Be faithful to God and with God in your suffering. Look at chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Look, if you will, in chapter 4, down at verses 12 to 14. It says, verses 12 to 14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. <laughs> but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests Upon you. Look at verse 19. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will. I can't wait to get to that verse. According to God's will. And trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. How do you live in the world as a stranger? As a pilgrim and an exile? First thing, be faithful in suffering. Remember the instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, catch that? The kingdom of heaven. You're not at home in the world living as a stranger, living as a spiritual exile in the world. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness sake for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Jesus said. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so the need under this first point is the need for divine strength. Divine strength. And we'll talk about that as we move forward and we are able to persevere Going back to First Peter for just a moment, in chapter 4, he talks about this. The need to be upheld by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and, and so that we're not left to our own strength and willpower, but the strength that God supplies. Look at First Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one, listen to this, as one who serves by the strength that what? That God supplies food for thought how do you serve as someone who serves with the strength that God supplies that's how he says to do it the one who serves let him serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies why in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever amen that's number one how do we live? We're going to see this over and over again. Faithful in suffering. Number two, pursue holiness in life. Pursue holiness in 
life. Look at chapter 1 again, verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13. Pursuing holiness in life is a part of the Christian calling, and it is especially uh, necessary for us to live faithful as strangers and exiles in the world. If you look with me there in chapter 1, verse 13, it says this. Therefore, preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How so? Verse 14. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, that's something we're going to learn as we go through this. How do we live as a stranger in an exile in the world? We live it in the pursuit of personal, practical holiness and purity of life. As a matter of fact, this idea has three different aspects to it. I'll give them to you just briefly. The idea of holiness has three aspects. Number one, set-apartness. Something is holy when it's set apart. We talked about this in our discipleship seminar this morning. To God, for God, with God. Second aspect is Christ-like purity. We have been called to be conformed by the power of the Spirit through the means of grace, which includes the local church and Bible study and memorization and prayer. We are called to be conformed to the very image of the Son of God, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ Christ-like purity is one of the aspects of Christian holiness. And the third one is what I want to call strangeness. (laughs) Strangeness. We're not at home in the world, and therefore we should be strange to the world. What's up with you people? You're weird. You're a little, you're a little strange. That should be a part of your life. It should be. So the more we fit in with the world, the more the world doesn't know any distinction about us from themselves, is to the degree that we are failing to pursue this Christ-like purity, set-apart, holy life. Romans chapter 8 Verses 28 and 29 give us a powerful picture of this vision and this calling. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. If you're a Christian this morning, you were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And the practical outworking of that in your everyday life is what we're talking about. It's what the Apostle Peter is talking about. We are to be faithful in suffering, first of all. Secondly, we are to pursue holiness in life. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Or, Philippians 3.21, God who will transform our lowly body to be like His, that is Christ's most glorious body, by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Now, in practical application, we are then called to pursue that. This is what you are in Christ. 
this is what you are going to be in perfection at the resurrection. Between the time of your, of your salvation and the time of the return of Christ, you are to personally pursue it. So you have commands throughout First Peter that we'll look at later, or the, the Apostle Paul. Let's use him as an example. Colossians chapter 3 verse 10. Colossians chapter 3 verse 10. Talking about the Christians. And have put on the new self. The new self. Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. One more. First John chapter 3. What were you saved for? You're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. You're on the fast track toward a resurrected body, fashioned like His most glorious body. First John chapter 3, beginning in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. That's where we're headed. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Did you catch that? I'll read that last one again. You didn't hear me. And everyone who thus hopes to be made like him purifies himself as he is pure. So pursue holiness because that's what Jesus died to purchase for you. Because that's where you're going and the Christian life in exile and as strangers is to be lived this way. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, he's, I love him because we need voices like him today because he's so forthright and so spot on. L- listen to this. We need preachers in the pulpit like this today. Quote, Christ will be master of the heart and sin must be mortified, put to death. If your life is unholy, then your heart is unchanged and you are an unsaved person. That's powerful. We need to hear more of that today. I'll read it again. You wasn't listening. If your life is unholy, then your heart is unchanged and you are an unsaved person. He qualifies this. The Savior will sanctify his people, renew them, give them a hatred for sin and a love for holiness. The grace that does not make a man better than others is a worthless counterfeit. Christ saves his people not in their sins, but from their sins. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And that last phrase is a quote from the book of Hebrews. Uh, We need to be taught about that. What does all that mean? But it's a powerful quote. We need to pursue holiness. Thirdly, be vigilant because of spiritual enemies. Be vigilant because of spiritual enemies. If you go back to First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, you have a powerful verse here that we will get to later on, but we want to see at this point. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be what? Watchful. You know what that means? Be vigilant. Okay? So be vigilant. I think the King James uh, Version there in the 17th century translated that into vigilant. But it means, what the word vigilant means is to be watchful. Be sober-minded, be watchful, 
your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Vigilance is a careful watchfulness so as to not be taken by surprise. Have you ever tried to sneak up on a cat? It's hard to do. Why? Because they're vigilant. They're watchful. We need to be vigilant because we have not only, listen, do we not only have this nature of sin that we're going to talk about in the flesh, but we also have Satan and demon spirits that are seeking to to just pounce upon us in coast mode, spiritual laziness, and you're, you're just coasting through life, and you're not being vigilant, and Satan just says, ooh, there is an easy target, easy target. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 41, Matthew 26, 41, I'll let you jot it down. I know I'm moving rapidly here. Watch and pray, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13 says this. I love this verse. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Act like men. I love that part. A lot of men need to stand up. They need to, they need to start acting like men. And we're all called to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, be strong. Number four. Number four. Not only vigilance, but live as a witness for Christ. We're going to talk about that as we go through the book. Let me show you a couple places. Chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. Living as a witness. So while we're here waiting on the Lord's return, be careful. Be so careful that you don't try to just hide away in the mountains of your little church and not follow the Lord's command to go into all the world. And make disciples of all nations. So easy for Christians to do that. We're being persecuted. We just run into our little holy huddles. And we won't reach the people that God has called us to reach. He will reach the people that he's going to reach. It just won't be through you or me if we do this. And and, and somebody else is going to share in that blessing. And God is still going to get his glory. But we're going to get a scolding at the judgment seat of Christ. Look, if you will, in chapter 2, verse 11. 11 and 12. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Then verse 12. Keep your conduct, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that... When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So it's, it has to do with your deeds, and it also has to do with your words. Being a witness for Christ in the world. Look at verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, <laughs> whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as, as sent by him, that is God, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So a part of how we are to live in the world is not to be rebels against those that God has placed in authority over us, which means abide by the law. 
of the land. Unless that law crosses over and commands of you to deny God and your Christian mandate. Then your supreme allegiance to God and your citizenship as a citizen of heaven then trumps any other kind of allegiance or citizenship that we may have on this planet. So we're to live as witnesses for Christ. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some husbands do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Did you notice the connection? What I wanted you to see is that these unbelieving husbands are actually going to be won over because of their spouse's faithful living as a witness for Christ. Listen to what Andrew Murray says concerning this. Nature teaches us that every believer should be a soul winner. Nature teaches us this. It is the, an essential part of the new nature. We see it in every child who loves to tell of his happiness and to bring others to share his joys. How easy it is to talk about something that gives us great joy. How easy it is for us to talk about the new job that we just got. How easy it is for us to talk about uh, the grandchild that was just born into the world. Or one of our children. How easy it is for us to talk about the things in life that give us joy. Right? It's easy. Well, if you have the supreme joy of being a Christian and having an eternal relationship with God, how easy it should be to be his witness in the world. Well, this calls for courage and we'll talk about that later on. Well, let me take a minute here. In, in the book of Revelation, there's a, there's a statement, Revelation chapter 21, that I never noticed for a long time. It's a list of sins that will be cast over into the lake of fire. And I want you to notice that at the top of this list is cowardice. Cowardice. One of the great challenges for the Christian church today is to be the church as is clearly defined and called for in Scripture. <laughs> and not some kind of an Americanized version of Christianity that is not Christianity at all. That's one of the challenges. And that's going to take courage because there's going to be a lot of people that say, Man, what's wrong with you people? You take the Bible too seriously. You're too serious about being a Christian. What's wrong? Look at everybody else. We're not taking it that serious. So it's going to take courage to stand up in the midst of nominal Christianity and be the church and the Christian that God called us to be. But it's also going to take courage because of what, we, what we've already uh, learn. We're going to be under persecution and there's going to be this pressure on us to be cowards and to buckle underneath that and go live in our little safety zones. But we can't do that. We can't do that. We must not do that. We must be ascending, supporting church that seeks through prayer and going and giving to take the gospel to all the nations of the world. Revelation 
But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We must have a God-centered, God-trusting courage if we're going to live for the glory and honor of God in this world. Let me give you a story. I don't tell stories that often. I want to tell one in closing. This is a story about a missionary that I think paints such a powerful portrait of this kind of courage to be witnesses for Christ. And I hope that it will be an encouragement to you. It's about a man who was a missionary by the name of Adoniram Judson. He was a Baptist missionary to Burma in 1813. He went there when he was 23 years old with his wife of 17 months, Anne. He left New England when he was 24 years old. And he worked there for 38 years until his death at at 61. He had one trip back home to New England after 33 years of being away. And the price that he paid for some of us in this room to think about is absolutely tremendous. And my preface statement would be that that same courage and that same willingness to give his life over to God for the purposes of God in the world is the same courage and the same giving over that every one of us are called to do. Now, Anne, his wife, who married Judson on February the 5th, 1812, left with him on a boat on February the 19th. She was 23 years old. She bore him three children. All of them died. The first baby was nameless, born dead. Just as they, listen to this, just as they sailed from India to Burma. Now, what would most people do today? Go back home. Just had a, thought we was going to have a child. The child was born dead. I, I need to go back home. But they didn't. The second child, Roger Williams Judson, lived 17 months and died. The third, Mariah Elizabeth Judson lived to be two and outlived her mother by six months, and then she died. On June the 28th, 1810, Judson and others presented themselves to the Congregationalists for missionary service in the East. He met Anne that same day, fell in love with her. After knowing Anne for one month, he declared his intention to become a suitor. He wanted to date her and wrote to her father the following letter. That's what has to happen. He has to write and ask me, and I might let him. Listen listen to this letter. You want to talk about about the kind of courage that it took. And I don't want you to see this and say, wow, look at that. I want you to see this and say, that's what I'm called to. Listen to this letter. I have now to ask, this is to to her father, whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. 
Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteous brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? That's what he wrote to her, to his, her father. Her father amazingly said, she could make up her own mind. And so she wrote a letter to her friend. Listen to what she says. Quote, I feel willing and expect, if nothing in providence prevents, to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia's her friend. I have about come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends and go where God and his providence shall see fit to place me. Oh, to God that we would have that kind of fearlessness in the Christian church today. Now, you may not go to Burma. I hope you do. But you may not. But you still can have that same kind of give your life over to God for his purposes in this world, which includes being a vibrant and powerful witness for Jesus Christ as you pursue holiness in life, as you remain steadfast and unmovable and faithful under the persecutions that you have in this world for God's glory and for the good of other people. Well, number five <laughs> is extend love. We'll talk about that as we go through. That's, that's the fifth thing about living as an exile chapter 2 17 chapter 3 verse 8 chapter 4 7 through 11 we are called to extend love in this world and all of it beloved all of it from start to finish first peter to the the end of the of the of the letter from genesis to revelation also throughout this letter we will see this this one reality that every bit of that and even more is all to be to the glory of god the supreme desire of a, of a Christian is not to miss hell and get heaven. It is to get God and to see God glorified in the world by people saved and giving him praise. So that's where we're going in this letter. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word and with your people. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. God, now we pray that you would make us, make us these kinds of Christians. Christians that have a risk-taking courage.